0: Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23, I think that's page 827, somewhere right around in there in your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you can take that Bible home with you, all right? That is our gift to you, and you'll see today just how important God's word is to Jesus, our Savior, and it's important to us as well. So uh, that, that Bible is the word of God, and we treat it as such. We listen to it as such. Take it home with you if you don't have one. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say, there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father in heaven, you have spoken to us through your son. And we thank you that we get to hear from you. We thank you that your words are recorded for us in Scripture so that we could listen to you every day. And Lord, we know today, as we've come to listen to you from your word, that, that we need to listen with understanding. So give us understanding by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, all of us are wrong. Maybe most of us, okay. Most of us are wrong a lot more than we care to admit. And we're wrong, all of us are wrong more than we know. And we go wrong in lots of ways. We go wrong in a lot more ways than just grammar or math. We go wrong in many, many ways. Sometimes, a lot of times, we're morally wrong. As in, knowing that there is a righteous way and an unrighteous way, we're morally wrong when we choose the unrighteous way, when we stray from what God has called good and righteous and holy. Sometimes we go in the wrong direction. It's another way to be wrong, isn't it? Not just morally wrong, but directionally wrong. You have a destination that you're aiming for, so you're trying to get to Monterey, and you've chosen to take the 15 instead. Well, sometime around ZZYXZX, or whatever it's called, you'll realize you went in the wrong direction. Somewhere along the way, you made a wrong turn. Or suppose you're trying to pilot a ship through the Suez Canal, and you point to the side. You're going in the wrong direction. You've got to go through the middle of the canal to get through it. Wrong direction, wrongness can also apply to time, can't it? If your aim is to accomplish a certain task in a certain amount of time, and yet you fill your time with all sorts of other things, things that don't help you accomplish that task, well, you will not arrive at a timely completion of that task, will you? Whether that's something as far out as as a degree, or building a house, or retiring, or it's something really immediate like just finishing a project Distraction and a lack of focus will take you in the wrong direction. You'll go off course. Fundamentally, being wrong happens when, when there's some thought that we have or some conclusion that we've come to, something that we're doing that just doesn't line up with reality. There, there is... This is probably the most controversial thing I'll say today. There is an objective reality. And the the only person with 100% total access to that objective reality is God himself. The rest of us are all grasping at that total absolute reality. And we're we're grasping at it through some combination of, of our experience and our capacity to reason and the experiences of others, and sometimes we actually come pretty close. Pretty close to, to grasping that truth. And other times we're, we're wrong. We're, we're far off from the truth. One area, and you all know this, one area that we are particularly limited, exceptionally limited, is our understanding of the future. sometimes, we actually all the time, we don't know the future, especially the future of the future. Right, what we call the end times or the resurrection, as we see in our text. The new creation, as it's sometimes called, or the eschaton. The spirit through Paul in 1 Corinthians says, of these things, we only see through a mirror dimly, which is a good, confusing way to put it. Simply, we just can't see perfectly those things. And yet we are seeing something. There there are some things we do know with confidence about that day. Only our, our knowledge of these things doesn't come from our experience of them. We can't experience them, can we? Our knowledge comes from God himself. From knowing who he is and what he has revealed to us in his word. Well, the Sadducees this group of men in our text today, they were wrong, as Jesus shows us. And they were wrong because they were not submitting themselves to God's word. They were far more confident in themselves than they were in the power of God. And in all things, friends, listen, in all things, that is the quickest route to wrongness. To be more confident in yourself whether that's in your thoughts or your emotions or even in your experiences. That's, that's a hard thing to kind of grasp. To be more confident in our own experiences than in the word of God and in the power of God is always the surest way to be wrong. It will lead you to error. Placing yourself over God's word instead of under God's word will lead you to error always likewise doubting the power of God will always lead you to error and we'll see what Jesus means by these things as we work our way through the text this morning all right so as, as Matthew tells us in verse 23 we're just going to we're going to kind of go through the text we'll summarize that first section the the challenge and then we'll kind of pick apart that last section, Jesus' response, okay? So Matthew tells us in verse 23, this confrontation occurs on the same day as the event that we studied last Sunday. So last week, last Sunday, really the same day as what's happening here, the Pharisees and the Herodians were questioning Jesus. They were trying to trap him. Do you remember that? This occurs on that day, just later in the day. And we're still somewhere on the temple grounds, They're in Jerusalem, and you should know this, given that today is Palm Sunday, according to the church calendar, this event occurs a couple days after Palm Sunday. So this is probably Tuesday of Holy Week, three days before Good Friday. So earlier in the day, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians opposing Jesus. Now come the Sadducees, and we've talked a little bit about these guys before. They're, They're only mentioned once other time and in, in one other time in Matthew's gospel, and this is the only event that they're mentioned in in Mark and in, in Luke's gospel. We've talked about them before. They're, they're kind of like the the upper class Jews. They were um, they were really schmoozy with the world in a lot of ways. They 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 worked the political army uh, uh, rather the political angle with Rome. So they're They're working politics with Rome, trying to maintain some place of power and control in Jerusalem. Uh, Philosophically, they borrowed a lot of what they believed from Greek culture. So they're involved in politics. They're involved in worldly philosophies. They're, They're really known for mixing their religion with political power. And whenever compromises were necessary, they would compromise their beliefs in order to maintain Political power. The compromise always went away from the historic faith, not toward it. It's also important to know that the Sadducees were the group who were in charge of the temple operations. And the position of influence they're kind of running the temple gave them a lot of sway within Judaism. So they got sway within uh, the government and they have sway within the religion because of their. Their center of power being the temple, and they are running the temple. Most of what we know that they believed, we get from the historical record of the Bible. Because after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, well, there's no reason to be a Sadducee anymore, because there's no temple. So they don't write anything down after that, because they basically cease to be as a group. Here's what we know that they believed. And Matthew tells us, doesn't he, here in verse 23. Uh, he says the Sadducees denied that there was a resurrection. It means they believed that once people died, they were dead. That's it. All done. There's nothing after death. No heaven, no hell, definitely no future resurrection, just death, burial. Uh, burial. And then and that's the end of your existence. You're done. We've talked um a little bit about this before, but but we should also know that that their belief is what is known as a materialist philosophy. By, By Materialism, I don't mean he who dies with the most toys wins, that's consumerism. Materialism is the belief that the physical world, what we see, what we can touch, physical world is all that there is. And we know that they were materialists in this way because of what Luke tells us in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 23, Luke, led by the Holy Spirit, tells us the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit. So basically all of these things that you can't see don't exist. They would not have come to these conclusions through studying scripture. They could not have. Most likely they were influenced by Greek philosophy. The popular philosophies of the day would be Epicureanism or Stoicism. Those were their grounds of of information. It was popular to believe those things, and so the Sadducees believed those things. And yet, they still wanted to maintain their Jewishness. They wanted to maintain their Jewish identity in the midst of their worldliness. Really, really similar to the way that you see more liberal theological or theologically liberal Christians trying to maintain the philosophies of the world but claim to be Christian. That's that's what the Sadducees were doing in their own day. They believed in some of the Jewish traditions, but only what you'd find in the first 5 books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, Levit- Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those that was their bible. Anything that came after Deuteronomy, they would read, but they considered it suspect. It wasn't authoritative for them. Now, contrast that group to Jesus. Jesus understood all of the Old Testament as authoritative. The same Old Testament we have was what Jesus understood to be authoritative. So Jesus includes in his Bible the book of Daniel, And in the book of Daniel, Daniel teaches us about the resurrection. God, speaking through Daniel, says, Daniel 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the resurrection. Why did Jesus believe that there was a resurrection? Because the Bible said there is a resurrection. Well, knowing that Jesus believe that there was a resurrection, the Sadducees want to show everyone else who's looking just how ridiculous this Jesus' irrational beliefs are. So they come up with this logical challenge to the idea of the resurrection. And they draw their challenge from Old Testament law. So in the law, and by law we mean the, the, the book of Moses in Deuteronomy, uh, we, we see this also in Genesis. We saw it in Ruth, but what is prescribed in Deuteronomy is something known as leveret marriage. And if you think, like I did prior to this week, that leveret marriage has something to do with the Levites, you're wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the word Levite. Uh, lever in Latin means "husband's brother." That light bulb comes on. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. Levirate marriage is a marriage to the husband's. Brother, So the principle in the Old Covenant is this. Land is tied to the family name. And remember, all the 12 tribes received land. They were given portions of the land, and that was tied to their family name. So within the tribes, the land is passed from father to son, and so on. If a man dies, and he has no son yet, then the land that the man's wife, her the widow would depend on that land is in jeopardy someone else in the tribe might claim the land and then the widow would be destitute she would have nothing from which to draw her source of income on well in order to make sure that the widow is provided for and to keep the land in the family to keep the family name going a brother to the deceased is responsible to provide a son to the widow the levirate son will then inherit the land and take care of his mother. Right? So it was a way of keeping the land in the family, and it was a way of taking care of the widows. Well, keying in on this law, the Sadducees assume there cannot possibly be a resurrection, because if there was a resurrection, it would contradict this law. And then they, to show their reasoning, they present Jesus with this absurd scenario. That we read, man marries a wife, he dies, leaves her to his brother, he dies, leaves her to another brother, and so on and on and on, all the way down to the seventh brother, and then he dies, and then the woman finally dies. And the question that they're asking is this, in the resurrection, if there is such a thing, you can imagine them kind of making googly eyes at Jesus, when all are raised up and pick up life where they left off, in every way they're making fun of Jesus' beliefs, Which of the seven brothers will the woman be married to? Now, I'll just say here, and you were probably thinking this same thing. If you're not, that's okay. If I were to ask Jesus a question about the resurrection, this would not be my question. (laughs) I mean, think about it. You have Jesus, the Son of God, the beginning of the new creation, and he knows all about everything in the future, except when it will begin. (laughs) But he's standing right there in front of you, and you can ask him anything, and you waste your question on what really is a joke meant to insult him. Why not ask him, and if you came here wondering if I would answer these questions for you, I'm not going to, but I'll tell you what my questions are. Why not ask him what age we will be for eternity? Who doesn't have that question? What what will we look like? Will I look like my 25-year-old self? Or will we be our 70-year-old selves? Or 7-year-old? Will we ever get hungry? Will we get thirsty? Will food actually be enjoyable? Will there be meat? Will, will, and if there is, will it come from animals or will it be beyond meat or whatever that stuff is? (laughs) Will there be coffee? Will there be wine? And if there's wine, what happens if you drink too much wine? Will we live in homes? And who's going to build the homes? Will we sleep? Is there grass? Living in San Diego, I come to appreciate the grass I used to have in the southeast a lot more? Are there mosquitoes? I have a lot of questions. I have loads of questions, and I promise you that a hypothetical black widow and and which husband she'll be married to in eternity, that's not one of my questions. But the point of this, and we all know this, the point of this is not the question, is it? The Sadducees are not probing the depths of Christ's wisdom about the end times. Their, their goal is just to humiliate Jesus by showing the strength of their own logic and intellect. It, it, there, have you heard there's three reasons why people ask questions? Have you ever been in a group? Yes, you have. So you're in a group, whether it's a Bible study or whether it's school, and there's three reasons people ask questions. One is to show how much they know. Right. Two, because they actually do have a genuine question that everyone else has. And then the third reason people ask questions is to make a fool of the teacher. Uh, most of the time, it's the first or third. Uh, sometimes you get the o- occasional, actual, genuinely good question. This isn't one of them, and Jesus shows them. Look at verse 29. These guys really fail. Jesus answers them, you are Wrong. How would you like to be the only person in the entire Bible whom Jesus said, you are wrong to? In Mark's gospel, he actually says it twice in the way that Mark records it. Once at the beginning, you are wrong, and then at the end he says, you are quite wrong. Just to emphasize, wrong, wrong, wrong question, wrong answer, wrong conclusions about everything. And don't forget who Jesus is talking to. This is the establishment class. These are the guys with the connections. They're the ones with the connections to power. They know Pilate. They know the governor. One does not simply talk back to the Sadducees. Unless you're Jesus. Jesus doesn't fear them. He's not afraid of them. What is the worst that they can do to him? Crucify him? That's his intent. Jesus just tells them, you are flat out wrong. And he doesn't stop there. He tells them why they're wrong. And this is going to be our focus for the rest of the morning. Why are they wrong? Look carefully at verse 29. You are wrong because, one, you do not understand the scriptures, and two, you do not know the power of God. Let's look at these one at a time. How does misunderstanding the scriptures or not understanding the scriptures Scriptures, how does that lead us to wrongness? Well, all rightness, all, A-L-L, not all right, not everything is all right. All rightness is possessed by God. God is the all-knowing one. In fact, he is the only all-knowing one. So the most reliable source of knowledge that we could ever tap into is going to come from God himself. And what he has revealed In his word. God has revealed himself to us in his word. He's also revealed to us truths about creation and the world and the next creation in his word. And so Jesus says to the Sadducees, You're wrong because you don't know the word, you don't understand the scriptures, you are not drawing from this source of knowledge. Part of this has to do with their rejection of all of those scriptures after Deuteronomy. So when you, when you have a wrong canon, or if you have a canon within the canon, as if there is a more authoritative section of scripture and a less authoritative section of scripture, you will always wind up in error. One of the ways that we see that come out today, especially today, is when people say, well, I like what Jesus says but I do not like what Paul says. Usually, almost unequivocally, this has something to do with men's and women's roles, or marriage, or homosexuality, really anything that doesn't align with cultural progressivism. But when you hear a line, I do like Jesus, but I do not like Paul, all you're hearing, you need to understand this, what you're hearing is, I don't understand Jesus. Because there's very little that Paul says that Jesus doesn't also say. But more importantly, anyone who vets Jesus against Paul is grossly misunderstanding what the scriptures are. It's not Jesus versus Paul. The scriptures in their entirety are the very word of God. And Jesus brings that out for us here. Notice how the Sadducees quote Scripture. Look at verse 24. The Sadducees quote Scripture this way They say, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, and then so on. And now look at how Jesus quotes Scriptures. Verse 31 Have you not read what was said to you by God? You see the difference? When you read Scripture, Jesus is teaching us God is the one speaking. A man wrote down the words, yes. His personality comes out in those words, yes. He he was carried along by the Holy Spirit to write those words, yes. But God is speaking. This is how God speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. In order to not be wrong, we need to understand that the authority in the scriptures is God's authority. He speaks to us through his word. To avoid wrongness, we've got to understand that the Bible is the word of God. And because it is God's word, it has authority over us. And if Jesus is teaching that God is speaking through scripture, and that is what he's teaching, then there's something else we need to understand about scripture. If you're taking notes, this is that first one is rule number one. The Bible is the word of God. This, what I'm going to tell you now, is an inference from that truth. Here it is. Every word counts. Every word counts. If God is speaking, and just think of who God is for a moment. And He's speaking through His Word. We don't just pay attention to the verbs. We don't just pay attention to the nouns or just the commands. When God is speaking, every word counts. And this every word counts way of interpreting Scripture is how Jesus answers the Sadducees' question. He clearly believes that every word counts. Look at what he says, Matthew 22, verse 31, and following. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Again, don't miss that. Jesus teaches God is the one speaking in scripture. But now look at the careful attention that Jesus gives to every word. Every word counts for Jesus. He's quoting Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 here in verse 32 of our text. Have you not read what was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, he is not the God of the dead but of the living. So, to make that conclusion, he's not the God of the dead but of the living, Jesus points the Sadducees to one little word in the text. The word am from that passage back in Exodus. Do you see it? It's a two letter word, it's a small one. In the Hebrew, it's four letters, in the Greek, it's four letters, but it's just one little word, and it just occurs one time in the text, and yet it carries eternal weight. With it. It counts. What Jesus is saying is God did not speak in the past tense. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham, and then I was the God of Isaac, and then I was the God of Jacob. He says, in the present tense, the word counts, I am the God of Abraham. And then the same verb is applied or implied and Again and again, I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. The grammar even counts, doesn't it? Every word counts. God tells us in Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word counts. Jesus is telling the Sadducees, and he's teaching us, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were not somehow annihilated when they died. They continue to be because God is. And we can't take this too far. We can only draw conclusions that Jesus can draw from this. But Jesus isn't saying a whole lot about what the, ex- the current existence of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is. That's not the point of this. In fact, that's not even a question the Jews were asking at that time. Their question is regarding the resurrection. And in their understanding was either there is a resurrection or there is not a resurrection. The, the idea that there would just be souls in heaven was not even on the table for them. I don't even know how that came to be in our way of viewing things. The question is, is there a resurrection or is there not a resurrection? If there is a resurrection, then there is some holding place for people until the resurrection comes. If there is no resurrection, well, then people simply cease to be. Jesus is saying they cannot entirely cease to be because God is current. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at least, have some sort of existence in God. Now, because God says they do. And the conclusion we can draw from that is that there is also a future for them because God will always be. Therefore, the resurrection, Jesus concludes, is a biblical reality. It is a theological reality. It is an absolute reality because of who God is. The Sadducees fail to see that God is the author of Scripture, and so they err. They don't make the most of every word. They don't listen carefully to every word that's coming from God's mouth, because they don't acknowledge that it's coming from God's mouth. Their view of Scripture is low, and so they are wrong. They have no understanding They're wrong about the way things are. If you want to seek, Christian, listen, non-Christian, visitors, whoever you are, if you're here, if you want to seek rightness and you want to avoid wrongness, you need to understand Scripture. Listen carefully to every word that comes from God. And through that careful careful listening to God in Scripture, your self-confidence will decrease. And that's a good thing. Okay, It will decrease because your focus and your source of information will be in God. You will become God-centered, a lot more God-centered and a lot less self-centered. Your, your own experiences will matter less to you because what God says will matter more to you. And so as your view of God increases, your worship of him will increase. Your thankfulness for Christ will increase. Your thankfulness for the cross will increase. You grow more repentant. You grow more obedient. You grow more discerning, more loving, more Christ-like. Why? Because you listened to God. Because you wanted to listen to God. And you ate every word that came from him as if it were sweet Because it is. So, how can we avoid being wrong? Know that the scriptures are the word of God, therefore, the scriptures have authority over us, and every word counts. All right? But Jesus also said that the Sadducees are wrong because they don't know the power of God. Now, the power of God is a really big idea because God is all powerful, it means a lot of things doesn't it? The power of God. But there's one area in particular that the power of God in Scripture, whenever we read Scripture and we see power of God, whether it's the Old Testament or the New, what it's usually referring to is in redemption. And redemption is always spoken of as a redemption from something. So the power of God, whenever you see it in Scripture, it's usually in comparison to other powers, powerful. Powers. Yeah. God is more powerful, and he's being compared to other powers that we need redeeming from. So in the Old Testament, in in the book of Exodus, you'll see the power of God a lot. God says he's going to reveal his power in redeeming Israel from Egypt. And then when he does it, he displays his power in redeeming his people from other powers, particularly Egypt. Egypt and the gods of Egypt, the false gods of Egypt. The New Testament speaks of the power of God in a very similar way. The power of God is seen in salvation. It is seen in God triumphing over our enemies. In particular, our greatest enemies. Sin. Death. Jesus triumphed over sin at the cross, and he triumphed over death, at the resurrection, God says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to the, those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you see that? In that same argument, he goes on to say, so you keep reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you go into chapter 2, and you see he says that if the rulers of this age had understood that the cross was the power of God, well, they would not have killed Jesus, Interesting here, just to, to think in, in redemptive history, that, that Jesus is saying, you do not know the power of God to these rulers, and these rulers are the very men who will kill Jesus in just a few days. So Paul, looking back on that, that's when he makes that acknowledgement. Yeah, if they had known, if those powers had known, those rulers had known the power of God was in the cross, they wouldn't have killed Jesus. The cross is a display of God's power over sin. But more importantly, it's a hard thing to say, not more importantly, but more specific to our text, the resurrection is a display of God's power over death. So 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 says, for he was crucified, Jesus was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Christ lives, he's been resurrected by the power of God. And again in Colossians, Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, Jesus. It is the powerful working of God that raised Christ from the dead. The power of God conquers enemies. The word of God defines who our enemies are. And the Sadducees understood neither of these things. They didn't know the power of God. They believed that death was final. They believed that death was eternal, which is to say they believed that death conquered God's power. Death could somehow defeat God himself. Not knowing that God has power over death means they have no idea who Jesus is or why he's come. Because Jesus came to conquer death. Sadducees don't believe that's going to happen and so they, they just don't know who Jesus is. They don't know why this guy's here. They think he's just a teacher and a foolish one at that. They didn't understand the scriptures and so they didn't expect that God would send his own son to defeat death by being raised from the dead so that one day there would be a resurrection for us all. Because they don't know the power of God in Christ's resurrection, they're clueless. They're clueless regarding our own resurrection. And and by that, I mean that last day, the day of the Lord when Christ shall return And we will be raised up. And God will sit as judge. And on that day, those who are in Christ, those whose faith unites them to Christ, we will live eternally in joy in God's presence. Totally and completely satisfied in God. That's why Jesus says in our text in verse 30, verse 30, look at it. For in the resurrection, in that day, in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So the resurrection, eternity in the new creation is not like this life. This life is done, something new is being made. In this life, marriage has a purpose, and that purpose is temporary. It pertains to this life and this life only. God tells us what that purpose is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 to 32. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So that's marriage. That's the institution of marriage that we see created way back in Genesis chapter 2. And then the Spirit through Paul says in verse 32 in Ephesians, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ in the church. Now that word mystery means something that was hidden but is being revealed. All right, It's now revealed. So, so the meaning, the purpose of marriage was hidden in the old covenant but is now revealed in Christ, in the new covenant. Marriage was made to point us to Christ and the church. In the resurrection, the church will be so perfectly and completely united to Christ that all of our joy and all of our pleasure will flow from that union that we have with Christ. Marriage won't exist. Marriage in the resurrection will not exist. Because its earthly purpose, its creation purpose, has been fulfilled. I'm going to say it again, it was instituted by God to point to the future marriage of Christ in the church. And when that future marriage is consummated at Christ's return, earthly marriage, as a sign pointing to that day, will no longer be necessary. Right? When you, when you see a sign that says your exit is in eight miles and then you take your exit, you don't need the sign anymore because you've arrived. Think of it like the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. The sacrifices of the Old Covenant, you know, the sacrifices of goats and sheep and, and heifers and things, all of those sacrifices were meant to point believers where? To Christ and his sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. With the arrival of Christ, the sacrificial system is no longer necessary. Likewise, marriage points towards the return of Christ. It points us towards the return of Christ. When Christ returns and the meaning and purpose of marriage is fulfilled, earthly marriages will cease to be. That's what Jesus is teaching about the resurrection. And that's what Paul teaches in Ephesians. Paul and Jesus are always teaching the same thing, okay? Just to go back to an earlier point. So if you're wondering what Jesus means here by, by being like the angels, and yes, you're wondering that. What does he mean by that? Remember what we learned from Jesus earlier every word counts. And here, one of those every words is the word like. Right? We will not be angels. Okay? So Every time a bell rings, an angel gets, it's not a thing. We will not be angels. We will be like angels. Angels do not marry. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Angels find their meaning and their purpose in the worship and service of the Lord. Their enjoyment comes from serving the Lord and being in God's presence. That's what our existence will be like. What Jesus is saying is that rather than finding our meaning and purpose in our marriages and in our families, we'll be a lot more like the angels. Incidentally, we've talked about singleness before, haven't we? This is why those who are single, intentionally single, devoted to Christ in this life, They have an advantage over the rest of us. They are closer now to how the rest of us will be in eternity. Marriage is good. Marriage is is given to us by God, but it's temporary. All right, We need to see that. It's temporary. It serves a purpose. It points us to the resurrection, to our future union with Christ. It's already begun. Our our union with Christ has already begun. It will be fulfilled when he returns. And if you're just thinking, I know this is another question that we have. Well, I mean, will I miss my spouse? Will I, I mean, what, what, will, what will my relationship with, with her be like? It, it's kind of troubling, isn't it? Especially for those of you who have been married for 70 years, 60 years. Think about, it's hard to even imagine existence without your spouse. But as much as you enjoy your spouse now, if you're hoping in Christ, for those of you who are hoping in Christ, your enjoyment of eternity with him will be infinitely greater. We can't understand that now. Not completely. We can't see Jesus. We can't feel him. We can't be comforted comforted by him in the same way that we can be by the physical touch of our spouses. But going back to what Jesus said earlier, if we understand the scriptures We would understand that our satisfaction can ultimately be in Christ. It can be. We would understand that even now, when we're gathered together as the body of Christ, he is here with us. We'll understand that on Friday, when we we take the Lord's Supper together, we're sharing a meal with Christ. He's nourishing us. We're eating with him. We're looking forward to eternity with him. When we pray, we're speaking to him. And he's interceding for us. And if we really knew the power of God at the cross and his power over death and the resurrection, we would know better that every bit of our hope, even now, is in Christ. So how can we avoid being wrong? That was our original question, wasn't it? How can we avoid being wrong? Well, we can know that the scriptures point us to Christ. And that the power of God is displayed in Christ at the cross and in the resurrection. So to avoid being wrong, even about our thoughts about the future and eternity, just focus on Christ. We've got to be in Christ. We're all rightness is and all righteousness is.